Thank you, Jordan. Morning, everybody. How are you? Good. 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 Exciting day. Baptisms and all, eh? Right on. So we're in Acts 15 again this week. Uh, Todd started us off last week. We're going to be in Acts 15 into the early part of 16 for a few more weeks. Uh, but Todd talked about the fact that conflict and controversy are guaranteed in the church. He says it's not a matter of if, but when we're going to have issues. And for any of you who spent time in church, it probably rings true to you. Is that right? Yeah. So I want to start off this morning with some real-life examples of, you know, church fights or contentious issues that church have struggled with. This is from a 2015 Twitter survey. I'm just going to go through a few of them. One church debated over how long the pastor's beard could be, or should be. One church spent time at a meeting discussing communion juice. Can you use cranberry grape blend, or does it have to be 100% grape? One, a big argument in one meeting, um, they had, because the annual budget was off by 10 cents. So they spent, on, I guess there was a blame game going on there. Somebody finally ponied up the dime, though, and that settled it. <laughs> big argument, uh, you know, in another church where one deacon accused another deacon of, uh, you know, sending in an anonymous letter to the board. They ended up taking that dispute out to the parking lot, for real. Very sad. Another church had, had an argument and discussion uh, over whether or not to install dividers between toilets in a women's restroom. I don't know about that. That seems pretty unanimous. Like, that seems like an easy slam dunk decision, you know? For the guys, they really don't care, but if the ladies, I'm sure they would have been voting for that 100%. Maybe they were budget concerns, I don't know, but that's not where you want to cut the budget, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, five, 40, one church had a 45-minute discussion over a filing cabinet, buying a filing cabinet. Should it be black or brown? And should it have two, three, or four drawers? And the last one I want to tell you about is about coffee. One church discussed whether they wanted to switch from Folgers to Starbucks. They made the right choice. They went for Starbucks, right? But somebody actually left the church over that, that issue. Probably because they didn't get their way, right? These are pretty ridiculous examples. But they do, and they probably point to bigger dysfunction in those churches. But the reality is we do deal with, with serious issues in our lives, in the life of the church. That's just a reality we have to deal with. And, and, the, and they come in many forms. Some come in a more broad sense. You know, they're more of like the theological issues. Sorry, can you guys hear me? There we go. Theological issues that, you know, kind of on a broader sense, the whole church is discussing these things. Like in recent years, sexuality is a big one. Uh, you know, uh, sexual identities. Uh, we, you know, really the question of what, what is sin is ultimately what's at stake there. Uh, we talk, people fight over hell and eternal punishment. What does that look like? Is God really that capricious? You know, sanctity of life issues, you know, abortion, end of life. Those are big, big questions people have. Uh, women in leadership is an issue. End times, the prophetic, understanding those different things. Uh, and politics of many sorts can come into the church from the outside and create issues for us. So there's issues on the broad sense, but there's also issues that happen at the local level, and there's issues that happen in conflicts that happen between in our relationships. Some churches, there's abuse of power by their leadership. Some churches struggle over change, you know, the traditionalists versus the progressives. It can be good and bad, right? Change can be good and bad. Legalism, personality issues, spiritual and emotional immaturity, these cause issues. Marriage problems, broken friendships, the list can go on and on and on. There's so many different types of, of conflict and controversy we can, we can experience. 
And it's not good, and it's not healthy. Uh, But the one we see here in Acts 15 has arisen because there's a group of of, uh, Jewish Christians or Pharisees who are insisting that circumcision was necessary for salvation. They wanted to impose this on the Gentile brothers who were coming into the faith. Essentially, they were saying there's no salvation outside of the covenant community. Gentiles must convert and, and, and follow the stipulations of Judaism if they wanted to, be part of, wanted to be saved, if they wanted to be part of the Christian community. The issue, of course, is that they were placing extra burdens on these people. They were bringing the old Mosaic law and trying to enforce it in the church. And this is serious because they were fundamentally challenging and changing the, the gospel message. And so because of that, that's why this Jerusalem council has been called. And in the part, portion of the text we're going to read today, we've reached a really pivotal point. Not just in that text, but I think it's a pivotal point for all of church history. Because the decision that's made here has ramifications that, that come in, and last and, and impact us to this day. Right? And so as we look at the, this passage today, I think, let's take a look at it. What, what key principles can we see for how they handled the conflict? Uh, because we are inevitably going to face conflict in our lives. And so we're going to t- turn to Acts 15, verses 12 to 21. That's what our text is today. Uh, I'm just going to give you a little bit more context here. Uh, so there's been this big debate, lots of debate, and then Peter arises and he speaks against the circumcision requirement. And he affirms the Gentile Christians, arguing that their hearts have been cleansed through faith. And then he argues that all people are saved by grace. And that brings us to, to verse 12, which I'll start reading now. All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may see the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city uh, has had in every city those who proclaim him, and he is read in every, every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, so my first point here is that during, and the first thing I think we can take away from how they, how they handled the conflict is this. During conflict and controversy, I will listen to the counsel of godly leaders. So once again, raise your hand if you've ever sat through a boring or tedious church business meeting. I got a few, just a handful. Like I said, the first service, everybody else just knows better than to show up for those things, right? <laughs> but this is not one of those type of meetings, right? This was a who's who, the leader of, of leadership of the church. The big wigs were here, and they were tackling an issue that had huge significance for them. They were, they were striving to maintain the purity of the gospel, right? This is a meeting that you wouldn't have wanted to miss if you had been there. And so let's take a look at verses 12 to 14. It starts with this phrase, they fell silent, and some say, say the silence was an, indi- an indication that the debate was effectively over. Peter had just spoken, and now it's pretty much the debate's over. But there's also an element of respect in this as well. P- 
Peter had just presented his arguments and then Paul and Barnabas come up and they're going to give their testimony. Paul and Barnabas were really key in the ministry to the Gentiles. They were the ones who had been called out and they're at the center of the controversy, right? And they had a front row seat to see what God had been doing in the Gentile community and they spoke with authority about their experiences. You know, they'd been on this missionary journey. They'd been sent out from Antioch and they had seen the wonderful way that God and the Holy Spirit had been working, you know, the signs and wonders that he had been doing among the Gentiles. And so after this, after Peter and Paul and Barnabas have spoken, then James, he gets up to assess the situation. James here is, you know, uh, he's the brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote the book, James, but he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he's getting up to kind of decide, give us kind of a final assessment of the situation. And he calls everybody to attention. He says this, brothers, listen to me. And I love that he uses that, brothers. He calls them brothers. He, he wouldn't have agreed with everybody that was there. There was much debate, right? There was tension there. But he wants to include everybody. He's trying to unite the group. And so he says, brothers, listen to me. And then he begins to reiterate Peter's testimony. Essentially, Peter had spent time with Cornelius in, in Acts chapter 10, and he talks about, Cornelius was a, was a Gentile, he talks about his experience with the Holy Spirit, and then he makes this, this bold statement. He says this in verse 14, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. What he was saying is that the evidence of the Spirit at work within the Gentile church is the evidence that God had included them. He's already stated, you know, he'd already started to work in them the same way he was working in the Jewish churches. Then he concludes this, that God had, had determined the Gentiles were a people for his name. And that, that phrase is an important one, and it wouldn't have been lost on anybody at the Jerusalem Council. The phrase, God's people, or people for his name, was usually reserved for Israel, not for Gentiles. And so by saying that, he's indicating that God had chosen the Gentiles the same way he had chosen the Israelites, right? You know, the term God's people no longer referred to certain ethnicity or certain people who did certain practices, but it referred to people who had faith in Jesus Christ. And these Gentiles belonged the same way that the Israelites did. They also were a people for his name. I want you to understand that James is making this statement. He's come to this conclusion after hearing the testimony of Peter and Paul and Barnabas. But Peter and Paul, they're the apostles, right? <laughs> We're seeing demonstrated here is the apostolic authority. The people respected the, the apostle, uh, apostles' leadership. They trusted in it. They knew, they trusted that God had chosen them. And so they listened to them in silence, in humility. The apostles had been appointed by Christ <laughs> to provide the foundation of the church. We see that as Christ sends them out in, in uh, Matthew 28. They had a special authority to speak for Jesus to the believing community. And we see this throughout the letters in the New Testament. The way that you know, these apostles you know, confidently gave commands, gave direction, gave instruction. And we also see that they're highly esteemed by the people who, who are there. The issue had been debated, and then Peter and Paul come up. They spoke with authority, and they were heard. People listen to them. And this passage really is kind of the beginning of the end of the matter, right? Others had had their time to speak. When these guys came up, it's almost as if it was settled already. The people had listened to the godly counsel. Right? That's what, that was going on here. 
So who do you seek counsel from when you have conflict and controversy in your life? Like, what authorities do you have in your life? I mean, who do you rely on for truth? Who can you trust to give you good advice, to bring clarity to your situation? Maybe it's an author. Maybe for some of you, it's a speaker you like. A therapist. Maybe it's a counselor, a spiritual leader, a friend. It may not be any of those things. It could be that you like going to a website and has good information, good articles on it. Maybe you like the Hallow app. I know I can't get rid of that from my Instagram feed, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry, if you like it, I'm glad you like it. Um, but how do you know that you can trust any of these people? How do you, with so many Christian leaders failing us, it seems like every time we turn around, another one has fallen. Matthew 7 says this. Jesus warns, and it says that he, Jesus, in, sorry, in Matthew 7, Jesus warns of false prophets. He says, they, you know, they wear sheep's clothes, but really they're ferocious wolves. I love this quote from Jim Chalice. He says this, Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. His priests do not peddle in a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. And in the same article, he identifies a number of different leaders that we should be wary of, different types of leaders. He says, we have the heretics. Those are people who blatantly contradict traditional, essential Christian doctrines. And you have the charlatan. That's a person who uses their faith for their personal enrichment or gain. You have the false prophet. Those people claim to have new revelations. The abusers, they take advantage of others. They use their position to take advantage of others. The divider, they use false doctrine to destroy and disrupt the church. You have the ticklers. Ticklers are the people who tell you what you want to hear. Like this, these people approve, like they crave approval and popularity. They want to make sure their name gets known. You might see their names on their ministry titles. Then you have the speculator. This is, these people are obsessed with novelty, with new and strange doctrines. And as I read through those, those titles, those types of people, of leaders, I'm sure you guys can put a face to some of those names, some of those titles, sorry. So how can we know who to trust? Because these people are out there. I think I like uh, John Piper. He provides a great rubric for us. And it's, you know, four tests that he has to discern godly leaders. So I want to go through those four tests really quickly here. The first one is the test of the fruit of behavior. Okay. When you have a leader in front of you, watch them closely. Watch their families, their personal lives, right? We, you know, we're given elder, requirements for elders. Use those things. Use them. Are people measuring up to that? Do they, do, are they meeting those standards that are set? Also, look at their ministry. What's the fruit of their ministry? What's happening as a result of, what's, of, of their ministry? What happens after the fact? That's the first one, the test of the fruit of behavior. Second one is the test of sound doctrine. We need to listen closely to people for the details. We also need to know doctrine. We need to spend time understanding those things. Even Peter erred on the very issue that was at stake in the passage we're looking at today. Peter erred on that. In Galatians 2, Paul says he opposed them to his face because of the circumcision bit. Can you imagine two leaders at odds like that in your midst? <laughs> but one was wrong. And we thank God that Peter recognized his error. But I think what this underlines for me is that we don't want to put our leaders up on pedestals, right? We need to ask questions. We don't just follow people blindly. 
Right? They're humans. They're prone to sin just like anybody. So that's the second one, the, se- the test of sound doctrine. The third one is the test of submission to Scripture. Can and do these leaders back up their words with Scripture? When they make their points, can they back it up with Scripture? And do they take the time to do it? You know, what's the source of their wisdom? Where are they getting it from? Are they coming up with these things on their own ideas? Do they sound cute? You know, they sound nice to our, to, to our ears. Or are they actually getting it from Scripture? And the last one is this, the test of teaching the pure gospel of justification by faith. I said this to the first service. That's John Piper for you. He never says anything quickly. Anyway, no, we want to we make sure that we're, there's no legalism in what we're teaching. That we, we're not saying we can earn our salvation in any way. We want to make sure our teachers are Christ-centric, that they recognize Christ as Savior and Lord. So we want to make sure those four things are important. So keep those in your mind. As you meet leaders, do, or how are they lining up in accordance with those four tests? And once you've identified those godly leaders, be mindful of them. And when, when conflict arises, when controversy arises, go to them. Because they're going to give you honest and straightforward, uh, you know, you know uh, godly, scripture-backed up. Word. They're going to give you advice from that. There are people who are going to tell you tough things. They're going to challenge you to live by the word, to follow God. So once you've gone to them and they've given you advice, then comes the really hard part. First, you've got to listen to that counsel and understand it. Then you have to apply it to your life. Most issues that we deal with in our lives are really, really straightforward. That's the truth. You know? What makes it hard is that we have to make a decision to act on it. It's hard to obey God's word sometimes. You know, sometimes people say, oh, it's a gray area. Most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, we know, you know, we know what God's word, and we also know in our hearts that something's wrong, or we know the decision we need to make, and we just need to be able to make that. And that's where the support comes in of a counselor or a friend, that they can kind of help you walk through that. So we want to pray for humility to listen, and we want to pray, pray for courage to act on those things. Okay, and that brings us to the second point. That during conflict and controversy, I will believe the teaching of God's word. I've already touched on this, but I, I, you know, I, want, I think it's really important that we focus on it again. In, in verse 14, James had made this proclamation that God had taken from the Jew, Gentiles a people for his name. But as a wise leader, he doesn't just leave it there. And he backs it up with scripture. So if you're following along with your scripture, your Bible there, you'll see in verse 15, he says this. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So he's going to scripture right away. And then in verses 18, 16 to 18, he quotes the prophet Amos to corroborate his statement. He understands the importance, once again, of substantiating his truth with scripture claims. His truth claims with scripture. So what does this passage say to the issue at hand on circumcision? Let's get back into that. In verses 16 and 17, in this quote from, from Amos, it says, tells us that God had promised to restore David's fallen tent and to rebuild its ruins. For which we understand, you know, he's referring to uh, the commencing of the Messianic age, the lifting up of Christ. Christ is part of David's lineage. So that's what that's referring to. And it's also referring to the establishment of, of the church, of his people. That they're, so that the remnant of mankind, right, some, some uh, translations say the rest of humanity may seek the Lord through Christ. The Gentiles would have mean, could be included in the kingdom. 
So James is trying to make the point that Amos was prophesying that all of Israelites, the Israelites' benefits, their privileges, their covenant status would now be extended to, to, uh, to people from the Gentile nations. That they would belong to God as Gentiles, right? not as Jewish converts. Right? They didn't need to become Jewish. They didn't need to be circumcised. They didn't need to you know, adhere to all the rituals and, rituals and observances in order to do that, in order to be included in God's family. But instead, they were being welcomed into a new community, a community that include, included people who were saved by grace through faith. Amen? And then in verses 17 and 18, he adds this. The Lord makes these things known from of old. James is pointing out here by including this, that this plan is not of human origin, right? It's nothing new. What Peter, Paul, and Barnabas are, you know, had experienced, what they testified to, that had been ordained by God from a long time ago. They weren't making it up. Right? It wasn't just something that felt right to them. But it flowed out of God's plan for humanity. And it had been written down in God's word from of old. So James knew that he needed to convince his audience that these guys were right. And he knew that he would have to back up his point with God's word. And that's what he did. So I think we need to follow his example whenever we, we find ourselves in the midst of a conflict. We need to lean on God's word. We don't want to rely on our own feelings or subjective experience as we make these arguments. Instead, we want to rely on scripture. And we know that, you know, that scripture comes from God, that it's inspired by the spirit. We know that it's authoritative, that it's clear, and that it's sufficient. A passage many of you will know, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Kevin DeYoung says this. He's looking at the sufficiency of scripture in uh, Psalm 119. He says this. Our teachers, our friends, our science, our studies, even our eyes can deceive us. But the word of God is entirely true and always true. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It doesn't change. There is no limit to its perfection. It contains nothing corrupt. All God's righteousness, righteous rules endure forever. They never get old and they never wear out. So when we are involved in conflict and controversy, we need to establish ground rules for this discussion. And we might have some ground rules about, you know, being courteous and uh, kind to each other and how we talk to each other. But first and foremost, we need to agree on this, that we, that we will all come under the authority, the sufficiency of Scripture for help. We're going to lean on that. That's going to be the basis for, for our arguments. So no matter what people bring into the argument, no matter what experience they may try to, you know, to, to kind of use as an example, it ultimately needs to line up with God's word. And that's what happened here in the passage. That's what James did. He took the testimony of Peter and Paul and Barnabas and he backed it up with the prophecy out of Amos. So I think if we can't agree on that as believers, people in the church can't agree to make scripture that the basis for it all, then we have a bigger problem that we need to deal with. You know, we need to insist on this point. Otherwise, we get you know, what Paul calls in Galatians 1 different gospels, you know, or distortions of the truth. A number of years ago, I was in a meeting where we were discussing uh, the issue of women in leadership. And uh, one of the leaders who was arguing in favor of women as pastors and elders 
uh, he cited the fact that it was, you know, 20 such and such a year, and that, uh, you know, the world had progressed, progressed to this point, and that the rest of us needed to, you know, kind of catch up. That was the gist of his argument, which is a really, really weak argument, right? It's not a biblical argument, and it doesn't hold water when we're trying to determine God's will for the, for the church. Scripture has to be king. It has to be our guide. And of course, he couldn't back that point up with Scripture. Well, he couldn't. <laughs> so what does the, you know, my question for him is, what does the date have to do with determining truth? John Stott says this, councils have no authority in church unless they can be show, it can be shown that their conclusions are in accord with Scripture. So everything we do, we need to make sure it comes back to that. What this says to me, and should say to you, is that we need to know our word. Because even good, you know, well-meaning teachers and leaders will get it wrong sometimes. So all of us need to take time for Bible study. Like, intense Bible study. We can't be lazy about this. We can't be relying on somebody else's, you know, devotionals or whatever else. Those things can be good tools. But we also need to dig into it ourselves. We need to be in God's word ourselves. And we need to know it for ourselves so that we can identify when things go wrong or we can ask the right questions, right? So it's important that we personally are leaning into God's word regularly so, so we can do that. And I think as we deal with these contentious issues in our midst, we also want to approach it with the right attitude. And as we submit to the biblical authority, I think that produces in us the attitude of humility. I think as we do that and as we're in these arguments, we have to be careful of falling, you know, too, fall, too much falling in love with our own ideas, you know, our political viewpoints, you know, our positions on any faith issue. You know, lest we become hard-hardened to the point that we can't allow God's spirit to, to work in us, to challenge us or convict us. That's a scary place to be when you can't hear somebody else. It can be, and you can't hear God's voice through, through the word. And it can be very damaging to us and to the people around us. It can be damaging to our churches. So I affirm that we hold our convictions. We want to hold strongly onto those convictions that we have, especially core issues, right? And especially after we've done good study on these issues. But we want to be, when things aren't as clear, when the issue is not quite as, you know, when there's op, I mean, a possibility of different interpretations or understandings, we want to be humble in that. We don't want to be blinded to other perspectives on those issues. Instead, we should be asking God for clarity and we should be willing to have our minds changed on those things. We don't own the truth. Right? I've been there. I've been in those moments where I thought, ah, this is right. And you, get, you really, really hold on to something because you, you don't want to be wrong. And it's your own pride. It's not a good place to be. So we need to submit in humility to God's word. I think as, as we do this, and as we have, the, it'll give us the right attitude towards us. We want to maintain the right attitude towards others. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, another benefit of focusing on God's word is this. It's the source of our hope and our unity. And it's powerful in that way. I think as we, as we go to God's word, it helps to keep us away from that us and them mentality. We can call each other brothers the way that, the way that uh, James did. And we can focus, as we focus on the truth, it reminds us of the common faith that we share. And it helps us to maintain a right heart even in the midst of disagreements. Amen? 
Okay, so the first, first point we made is that during conflict and controversy, I want to, we will listen to the counsel of godly leaders and we're going to believe the teaching of God's word. And finally, we say this, during conflict and controversy, I will move forward together in unity. Looking at verses 19 to 21. In verse 19, James makes his official declaration, his judgment, and he says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Pretty straightforward. After much debate, one sentence kind of finishes it, eh? (laughs) But then in verse 20, I think James shows great wisdom here. While concluding that they weren't going to trouble the Gentiles, Gentile believers with circumcision, he's mindful of other issues that might arise. He knew that there were Jewish Christians who observed the ritual laws of the Torah, right? The people who were part of their communities, and that this might cause a problem for them. As, they, and he's, as these Gentile Christians became involved in their community and they were, you know, having close contact and fellowship with them. And so for the sake of Christian community, he adds these, uh, you know, four things that the new gentle Christian, Gentile Christians should abstain from. These four stipulations that he offers here, they were also given to resident aliens living in Israel in the Old Testament, in the Levitical law. So this, for people who are living there, this allowed them to be uh, considered um, undefiled or clean uh, in the community, allow them to participate in the community. And so even though the Gentiles had freedom to not do these things, he was asking them to do it for the sake of the community. These would have been minor inconveniences for them, right? And for the sake of their Jewish brothers and sisters and for the sake of community, they would have gone along with them. So what were they asked to avoid? The first one is meat offered to idols simply because of its connection with idolatry, right? Second one, participating in sexual immorality, um, because those who participated in sexual immorality were unclean, where they were defiled, right? Plus, it was morally wrong. Third one, eating of meat strangled, uh, eating the meat of strangled animals. Uh, This is meat that did not have, the blood had not been drained out of it, right? And then the last one is consuming blood, eating the blood. It's part and parcel of of the other one. Blood was considered sacred, so everybody who consumed it was considered defiled. And then he says in verse 21, from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues, in every city. So, sorry, I lost my spot there. <laughs> anyway, uh, two, things, two ways we can take this. The first one is this. This wouldn't have been a surprise to the Gentiles because there were synagogues all over the known world, right? They would have heard and they would have known what, the, what their expectations were. So that's one thing. Is to say, this wouldn't have been a surprise. But James could also be saying that because there were Jews in every city, that the Gentiles should be sensitive to that and they should abstain from these things so that they could you know, interact, mingle, and have the opportunity to share Christ with them. So there's a lot that could be said about this, but essentially what James is trying to do here, he's trying to maintain unity. That's what his concern is. There's compromise. He's making concessions because he wants everybody to belong together. And evidently, many of the Jewish believers had been there. They had been advocating for circumcision, right? And the leaders had not sided with them on that issue. But, Jesus, but, but James is here thinking about the growing communities and he wanting to maintain that and, and he wants to ensure that everybody can participate. And so that's what he's doing. His concern is about compromise and about uh, including everybody. In Romans 14, Paul discusses the weaker brother, encouraging us to be mindful and considerate of each other in, in our communities. 
And he says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. As I think about this debate, I couldn't help but think about the fights we have in our marriages and maybe for other people, it's other places. But sometimes we get in these conflicts, these, you know, these arguments, and it can feel really great when you win the argument, when you prove your point. You know, when you can say, hey, checkmate, I won. You know, um, maybe we feel a bit vindicated in those moments because the person's been challenging us. Carol's hearing me on this. And uh, anyway, <laughs> but that doesn't, it doesn't take too long to realize that winning isn't everything. Winning the debate isn't everything. If you've destroyed the other person in the process, if you've maybe belittled them or whatever, then you, can, you begin to feel like the loser. And you should feel like the loser. Right? So in our marriages and in other relations, we want everybody to win. Right? And that can only happen when we go about it the right way, when we strive to build up, as Paul says. And I would add this. The mutual upbuilding requires mutual submission. Philippians 2, beautiful passage. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is why that's important. Francis Safer says this. Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. How many of you have heard that argument? People criticizing the church for its divisions. Right? We hear it all the time. It's almost one of the first things that comes out of people's mind when they want to, when they want to challenge and say, what's going on? And they have a good point. As a people for his name, we need to demonstrate unity. Right? We need to understand the gravity of this. It's, it's part of our testimony that we, we belong together that we're humble enough that we can do that and we can consider each other before ourselves. And Paul David Tripp has a video series called Your Walk with God is a Community Project. And speaking on Ephesians 4 again here, the unity of the Spirit. He reminds us that living in community is hard. It's messy. You will get hurt. You will get bruised, he says. You may be misunderstood. You may be judged. You may have your reputation slandered. But he says, hang on in love. This is really hard. <laughs> God has put his spirit in you and in me as brothers and sisters in Christ. We may not act like it. But the truth is, the same spirit is in all of us. And then he says this. God will agree with God if we can get out of the way. God's purpose for you will never contradict his purpose for me. There is no disunity in the spirit. In the body of Christ, a win for you is a win for me. Right? We need to choose to participate in the spirit regularly. Right? Be filled with the spirit. Be being filled with the spirit, it says in Ephesians. So it's only by grace that we can do that daily. So in our passage today, we have this great example of Christian conflict resolution. It's a successful example of that. But if we're to listen to the counsel of godly leaders, if we're to believe the teaching of God's word, and if we're to move forward in unity, we're going to need to submit. We're going to need to submit to our leaders. We're going to need to submit to God's word, and we're going to need to submit to each other. 
I think this humility comes from understanding that we are his servants in his kingdom. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. We can never get, we should, you know, we can and should get passionate about the, the, these things, these issues. We want to be strong. We want, we want to really dig into them. But we can never lose sight that it's all about Christ. Right? We want to approach our conflicts with the desire to see him glorified. Amen? All right. Would you pray for me? Pray with me? You can pray for me too. <laughs> Evidently, I need it. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you today as sinners, Lord, as broken people. Lord, we're saved by grace, Lord. Lord, we come before you as a community of believers, Lord, but we don't always act like we are unified. Lord, we often fall short. We often find ourselves in conflict with one another. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people marked by humility, the people who are more concerned with the, the concerns and needs of others, Lord, than ourselves. And I pray that you would continue to lean on your word and that you would unify us through it. Lord, that we would be a people for your name. Lord, that you would be glorified in all of us. Amen.